Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another time to fellowship together in the unity of the faith, for giving us a day to worship you through your Son, for he himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What an indescribable gift our Lord and Savior is. Thank you, Father, for saving us for revealing to us how you are perfectly righteous in doing so. We pray that those here with us this morning are met with grace and love in their hearts, receivers of divine truth and light. We pray also for those not able to be with us due to sickness, that your will be done in their lives, and that they heal in every way you will them to whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation of a fantastic series that he's had us on for months now called The Gospel salvation and sanctification. This is part 37. This morning we'll be talking about what I'll call big picture salvation. Big picture salvation, which is to say we'll be looking at the way God sees salvation and how in His eyes there's no such thing as time as we know it. In other words, He's not bound by the construct of time. He's eternal. So through his eyes, salvation from his perspective takes on an entirely new frame of reference. We might call it unity. I was thinking about my old physics class, classes back in the day, uh, a thing called unity. In other words, it's just one thing. So from God's perspective, salvation takes on an entirely new frame of reference. Let's call it unity. In other words, salvation, deliverance, sanctification, they're all, quote, synonyms in a sense from God's perspective. Salvation, deliverance, and sanctification are all, quote, synonyms in a sense from His perspective. And if we can somehow wrap our finite heads around even a portion of this reality, we'll be set free all the more by it. Let's start with the Psalm of David. Go to Psalm 35.1. Psalm 35.1. And we can gather ourselves uh, on this topic a bit through the eyes of David, who is a very humble individual who wrote a good portion of the Old Testament, or is at least responsible for it. Psalm 35.1. Again, think of big picture salvation. What it means from God's perspective. The salvation plan, if you would. Instead of just applying your, or the normal way that people think about, you know, salvation and sanctification, and then you get into positional sanctification and experiential sanctification and ultimate sanctification. Instead of looking at it that way, think of 
the salvation plan. God sees it all at once. 35.1 Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Hmm. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares and let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in His salvation. Now David's already saved. So he's not talking about salvation the way most people sort of categorize it. And that's what he's saying. Think of salvation, deliverance, sanctification, unity. Think of big picture the way God sees these things. These things are already done as far as He's concerned. And when you see things that way, you gain a certain type, a certain transcendent freedom in your life. When you learn to see things in the finality of God's perspective, the absoluteness of God's perspective. Salvation for everyone in here is a done deal. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, it shall exult in His salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They open their mouth wide against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Lord. 
Do not keep silent, O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha, our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Now that's a big whole whopper of a perspective that certainly echoes how the Spirit started off this morning. Right now in our studies we are focusing on this big picture specifically how salvation, deliverance, and sanctification are merely different expressions of the same objective. Salvation, deliverance, sanctification, they're different expressions of the same end goal, the same objective as far as God sees things. And as I started off, if we learn to see things the way He sees things, our confidence goes through the roof. We have a transcendent life at this point. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live. This righteousness that we've been given from God is revealed from faith to faith. As we live, as we live, we learn these things. We learn the perspective of God, the finality of it, the fact that we have victory in Jesus. These are the themes that have been sort of padding this major big picture buildup here. Here's a good way to summarize the overarching theme up here on the board. Big picture salvation. God saves sinners. He saved you. He saves us every single day of our lives. That's what we just saw in Psalm 35. Who was David turning to? Who was he saying is his, was his salvation? The Lord was. But he was already saved. That's right. But the Lord still is the same Savior every single day. He delivers us from whatever our problems are by grace through faith. That's the main theme here. That's the big picture theology. And that's the way God sees things. And that's the way we, when we're in retrospect, when we're all in heaven and you know, enjoy, enjoying uh, the fullness of eternal life and looking back, that's how we'll see it. We'll be like, that was just a, that was a done deal, wasn't it? Yeah. God saves sinners. He saved you. He saves us every single day of our lives from our enemies, from the influences of our spiritual death, of spiritual death, sin, and evil. Salvation is an activity not merely a split moment in time. That's the way you have to think about it. Salvation is a plan that we witness in time. That's the big picture salvation that we're trying to get to this morning. God saves sinners. He saved you. He saves us every single day of our lives from our enemies. We saw that in Psalm 35. From the influences of spiritual death, sin, and evil. 
Salvation is an activity, not merely a split moment in time. Salvation is a plan that we witness in time. David also stated, go to Psalm 62.1. David also stated the following, Psalm 62.1. And again, we're just padding this concept of big picture salvation. That salvation is an everyday thing. God saves us every single day. The problem with hyper-categorization or hyper-doctrinalization, however you'd like to look at it, People tend to put salvation on a shelf as something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it's over and done with, and then they have this other thing that they're dealing with called life. But that's not living the gospel reality, and that's what the Spirit's been prompting us to consider. Psalm 62.1, My soul waits in silence for God only. How many of you can say that honestly right now? My soul waits in silence for God. Some of you are going, I'm waiting for this class to be over. I wonder if he's going to go long today. Football game. Is it, what is on? I don't even follow sports, really. Is it football? Yeah, all right. Football's on, right? Got my jersey. You know, some people are just going to rip off their college shirt, and there's a Patriots jersey underneath. They're ready to go. Ask yourself, my soul waits in silence for God only. Can you say that about your own life? Is the Lord your Savior every single day? Do you consider the fact that He's saving you every single day? Or are you on some pathway, some vector that says, or has something to do with self-sanctification? I'm going to find my peace, my happiness, my contentment, my own way. Thank you for salvation. That's up on a shelf somewhere. It's just categorized out on a shelf. It happened a few years ago or decades ago. Now it's up to me, and I'm going to self-sanctify, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm on a five-year plan. It's boom, 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 and I'll find my happiness at the end of that rainbow. God's like, what are you doing? So there we have David, the, the humble one. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. Now, he's already saved. This is not him talking about, you know, just going to heaven and he hyper-categorized salvation out as some past event and now it's all, you know, gravy from here on out. I get to live my own life, my own way, live for myself, sanctify my, by myself, for myself. That's not the spiritual life at all. David says, from him is my salvation, my deliverance, my daily everything. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Some of you would do well to commit Psalm 62, 1 and 2 to memory. Seriously. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. The Apostle Peter understood this principle as well. Go to 1 Peter 1, 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. So we're not, we're certainly not, Pastor Red doesn't 
specialize in coming up with new doctrines. We're not trying to discover some, you know, great little thing in the Word of God that, you know, no one else understands. Big picture salvation. No. Don't do that, please. This is, these are things that the so-called greats in the Bible understood implicitly, lived these things implicitly. They lived the gospel reality. Think of Paul. Think of Jesus Christ. Think of David. Think of Peter now. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, can't tell you how many times the Spirit had us going back to that phrase, the proof, dokimion, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. How does that work? Well, there you go, folks. This is what he's trying to get you to. In the midst of persecution and suffering, you have a joy inexpressible. That's only a paradox to a person who doesn't get it. That's only a paradox definitely to an unregenerate person, possibly even still an arrogant believer. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And that, my friends, is also not just talking about positional sanctification. That's talking about the deliverance, the daily deliverance of your souls. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. In other words, God saves you daily. And that's the perspective you need to have about salvation and sanctification. From God's perspective, they're done deals. And therefore, He saves us daily. The prophet Isaiah, go to Isaiah 61.10. He has something to say about this as well. Isaiah 61.10. You see, too many people see the word salvation, they assume it's always the same concept. Remember, context is key. Peter was already saved, talked about the salvation of his souls. David already saved, talked about his daily salvation with the Lord. The prophet Isaiah, same thing. These are saved people, folks, and they get it. They got it. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. That's a life issue, folks. That's not just Him talking about being saved and going to heaven. Being clothed. Think of uh, the Greek word in duo. We are to put on Christ. That's in the New Testament. But here we see the prophets say basically the same thing. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Remember, the righteous shall live by faith. 
A bridegroom decks himself out with garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. That's right, from faith to faith, to echo Paul's sentiments on the topic. This righteous person shall live by faith and people shall see it. Remember, we are witnesses, we are ambassadors, we're not of the world, but we're in it. Our job is to live as unto Christ. Anything we do, whether work, play, hobbies, whatever, we do as unto who? The Lord. Borrowing from John MacArthur on Isaiah 61.10. Here is the Old Testament picture of imputed righteousness, the essential heart of the new covenant. When a penitent sinner recognizes he can't achieve his own righteousness by works and repents and calls on the mercy of God, the Lord covers him with his own divine righteousness by grace through his faith. Speaking of imputed righteousness, think about the universality and the longevity of salvation as we get back to Romans 1. Go to Romans 1.16 now. Romans 1.16. So you see these big picture items regarding salvation. They haven't changed. Just different times, different eras, different amounts of revelation. I mean, someone like Isaiah, he wouldn't have known Jesus Christ by name. He wouldn't even have known really about the cross yet. But he knew that God was his Savior. Remember, Jesus Christ is God. He knew that God would save him. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. Didn't know Jesus Christ personally. But faith, grace... Righteousness, they were all the same. See, these people had the same idea about salvation. They had God's perspective on it. Romans 1.16, Paul also had it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to, to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Think about or think of this revelation as perfect righteousness being produced in a way that is completely foreign to carnal man. This lifestyle that we are earmarked to live is foreign to carnal man. That's why when you go to work or you go hang out with your friends or you go hang out with people um, that aren't of the faith, maybe even they say they are, but they're on the fringes, they've got some other weird contorted religion they're clinging to, these things are going to be foreign to them. You know why? Because they're just too flat out, too busy celebrating themselves. Too busy celebrating their religions, their little idols, whatever they may be. Could be spouses, could be children, could be jobs, could be um, hobbies, could be whatever. They're too busy celebrating themselves. They're too busy trying to find righteousness in themselves. That's called self-sanctification. 
And it has everything to do with self-righteousness. That's why, I don't know about you, but it keeps coming back probably for two solid weeks now, over and over, like a little dream. What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating here? What is it that we're celebrating daily? Who's our Savior? Who's our daily Savior? What are we celebrating? Honestly, what is it that you celebrate every day? Do you get out of bed and celebrate just being alive in Christ Jesus? Or do you celebrate about one step closer to your little end goal? What is it that you're celebrating? And that's what he's trying to deliver you from. Any remnants of self-sanctification. So these things, Romans 1.17, I mean, a carnal person, they won't understand that at all. They won't understand it at all. In other words, up here on the board, salvation. God is not only righteous and justifying man based on the work of the cross, but the imputed righteousness itself, that which a believer has received, creates in man the substance for a new way of life. That's what salvation means, big picture, folks. It's not just, hey, I got a free ticket to heaven. We dispelled that in the first 20 or so lessons of this series. Did we not? It's not a trip to heaven. Shame on us for even presenting salvation as equal to getting to heaven. Salvation is a sin issue, not about going to some destination. God is not only righteous in justifying man based on the work of the cross, but the imputed righteousness. So God has His righteousness in the act of justifying you by faith or by grace through faith. That's righteous. The act itself is righteous. But you also have been imputed a righteousness from God. We dissected that in Romans 1.17, the first part. You've also been given a righteousness from God. That in of itself, which you have, have received, creates in man the substance for a new way of life. It's the substance for a new way of life. Think about that. In other words, you don't have the big problem anymore. You've been given new faculties even. And God couldn't impute those things, those other things even, to your account until the big problem was taken care of. But the big problem is not the only problem, so to speak. It's not the only issue with salvation and sanctification. As we studied throughout the first 20 or so lessons in this series, only the true believer is saved in any sense of the word. Likewise, we can say that only a true believer is sanctified in any sense of the word. Stated more theologically, and bringing back into remembrance our previous lessons, only a believer is saved in any sense. Only a believer is sanctified in any sense. But here's the beauty of what we learned earlier. Once saved, once sanctified, it's yours. It's guaranteed. And that was that great litmus test, just to sort of echo back what we learned a few lessons back, specifically when we were still working through the gospel proper, the perseverance of the saints 
from faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. It endures. In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. Faith being the channel which things are poured out. Again, this is part of the perseverance of the saints. This is why he also, again, had a study for a short period of time, apostasy. An apostate doesn't endure because they never had true faith. They were never a true believer. But a true believer absolutely guaranteed will persevere. Otherwise, God's a liar. From faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. It endures. In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. Concentrate. And I encourage all of you, by the way, to mull over these principles long after the close of this morning's message. That's what bums me out. When a pastor comes behind a pulpit and half the congregation is not present, and there's this kind of a lesson before us. The only prayer I have left is, I hope those people who have chosen not to be here at least take the time to even be listening right now, live, or afterwards as a recording. And I hope they hear the same thing, that they too will mull over these principles. This lesson is impregnated with things that just... I'll tell you what, if you let them go, you're a fool. If you're concentrating about whatever that little thing is that you're trying to self-sanctify over right now, shame on you. And you get what you deserve. So concentrate, please. This one verse in the Bible is like a linchpin to every other major concept of our title study, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. It's the very essence of life for a true believer. That's Romans 1.17. If that person truly understands what is being conveyed, they will surely be set free. And that's why I can only do my job. I have you, what, formally three hours? And then every other Wednesday, another hour in an open discussion forum? And I have you with blogs and some books, maybe, as they come out? But there's a whole lot of extra time out there, isn't there? There's a whole lot of extra time in a week that I don't have any say or any influence over you, per se. But if you want to be set free, then you won't let lessons like this one go. Think of it this way if it helps. Saving faith. And expand your definition of saving, by the way, to include deliverance, sanctification. You were saved by grace through faith, positionally. And you are saved by grace through faith, experientially. It is by faith that the righteous man lives In other words, you can't generate in any sense of the word a righteousness. Only God can in you. 
And since it's God's work, it has to be done by grace. And the only way you receive grace is through the channel we call faith. And the only way a person receives faith, as we've learned, God gives grace to who? The humble. So if you want that faith, you want that channel to be opened up so He can pour out more grace on your lap, you better be humble. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. I'm like a broken record. You need to write that on. Well, I'm not going to have a... Well, I don't know. Whatever. If I die, just paint it in the sky with an airplane or something. I don't know. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. That's the, that's the... It's like the essence of this ministry, for crying out loud. How many times have I said that? But it's that true. I mean, it's that true. Look at the point on the board. If you're not humble, you don't get delivered the way you ought to be delivered. If you're not humble, you might not even be saved because you have to surrender to the Lord. That in itself is a baseline humility. You were saved by grace through faith positionally, and you are saved by grace through faith experientially. It is by faith that the righteous man lives. So upon this revelation, as a part of the Spirit's teaching on the subject, we also broached the subject of suffering. Okay, great. The righteous man shall live by faith. Okay. Sounds great on paper, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, yay, righteous man. Give me, give me faith, Lord. And then you go to your job tomorrow morning, and there's your boss. Why do you go to Bible class? What are you doing with that? Someone, who the heck was telling me that the other day? Was it you, Andrew? Yeah, I said, yeah. Was it on your phone or on your library? Yeah. So she shows up with her kingdom. I hope you don't mind me saying this. But she shows up to work, right? Or traveling with a co-worker, right? And the co-worker looks on her Kindle and sees the Bible app. What are you doing with that thing on there? What do you mean, what am I doing with that thing on there? This This is what it's all about. This is my life. And so, you're starting out in a new career, and there's a little subtle bit of like a, you know, trying to prove yourself in a new career, this kind of a thing. And lo and behold, the co-worker is like, what are you doing with the Bible? Why is there got to be a little bit of a contention there? Why is there got to be a little bit of a, hmm? Right? Now, it's one of those things, right? Well, then what? On comes the persecution. Andrea's a Jesus freak. So, we are to live by faith. But we're going to suffer. And we have to reconcile what that means in our lives. Because that's the facts. Those are the facts, my friends. We will suffer. Jesus suffered. We're going to suffer. Not only does the Bible say that a righteous man shall live by faith, but it also clearly states from Jesus all the way down through the apostles' letters that we will surely suffer. Therein lies the great, quote, paradox that the arrogant, ignorant unbelievers propose as the downfall of a just and righteous God. They say stupid things like, how does a loving God allow his children to suffer? 
How is it that my neighbor, the quote, born-again Christian, is so apparently suffering or miserable in certain ways? So the question we looked at on Thursday was, what gives? You know, what gives here? I'm living as under the Lord and I'm being crushed. I mean, you have no idea. From last night till this morning, all my files for this lesson kept blowing up. This folder disappeared, that folder... I came into class, I came into the office this morning, and none of my files were on the computer. What the? What gives? Wouldn't you think that God would just sort of like clear the way and it'd be all honky-dory, like some morons that stand behind pulpits teach? (laughs) Believe in Jesus and it's all going to be good. It's all going to be cherry blossoms and lemon drops. (laughs) Where's that in the Bible? That's not in the Bible at all. Not even close. I wrote a blog once said, warriors don't have smiles on their faces. People in the midst of battle aren't smiling. Oh, look at that. A bullet just skidded off my, my helmet. Oh. oh, Satan's attacking me again. Oh. No, this is gritty, bloody war. So what gives? What does the miserable, and I'm using the word loosely miserable. I mean, you know, maybe it's some area of your life, something that's just, you know, the thorn, like Paul cried out for. What does the miserable believer say to themselves when they read the likes of 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, which says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you're having a bad day, bad week, bad year. How the heck do I rejoice always? How am I giving thanks for these things? Well, to an unregenerate person, to an arrogant person, an ignorant person, they look at these things as, wow, why is God cursing me? Thought I was a stand-up guy. Why is he taking it out on me? Why is he not taking it out on the wicked over here? James helps us with perspective that only a true believer can live by. Can live by. In other words, if you think that life is um, like, you know, Candyland, where it's all uh, plum, what's that, what is it, plum something? Anybody? I'm the only, I'm the only adult that still plays Candyland. Shoots and ladders, anybody? No. In other words, if a, if a person thinks that life is going to be like gumdrop alley and, you know, plum, whatever the heck that thing was, then you are sorely mistaken. You're sorely mistaken. It's not going to be all about you. So stop trying to find ways to celebrate you and your little self-sanctifying victories in this life. That's just garbage Nothing wrong with celebrating things that God gives you. There's nothing wrong with celebrating. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you shouldn't garner your baseline perspective on God, on how much suffering or not suffering you're receiving. A religious person will say, I'm not suffering. He's blessing me out. I must be doing something right. A knowledgeable, wise person says, man, I'm getting cranked on. He must be trying to grow me somehow so that I can bring glory to Him in new and greater ways. 
so that the great theatron, even the angels who are rubbernecking, can see a little Job in me, a little Jesus in me. That's how you live. And then as Paul says, as a counterbalance, look, I've learned to go with or without. Doesn't matter. It's all about him. Amen. Amen? Amen. That's the right perspective. Only a true believer can live by it. So James helps us. I'll give you the amplified one, two to three. Consider it nothing but joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you fall into various trials. Be assured that the testing of your faith, through experience even, produces endurance, leading to spiritual maturity and inner peace. That's the perspective you want. You know what? That's the Bible. This other garbage that's being peddled out there is Christianity. Anybody else here? By the way, did you, does anybody realize that the word Christian was a derisive term when it was made? It wasn't a pleasant term. It was something to use. It was like uh, slung at believers. Anyways, in other words, there's no real reason why we ought to cling to that phrase, that term Christian, because God knows what this world has done, how it has hijacked that very term. So I don't know about you, but me, the word Christian bothers me now because of the way the world has redefined it. And I don't want the rest of the world thinking that I'm one of them. Teaching prosperity gospel, uh, uh, disgusting watered-down gospels, you know, say this thing, go to... Or the road is now wide that leads to salvation. If that's Christianity, I don't want it. Just call me a believer then. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that Christianity, I don't know what Bible they're studying, but it's not this one. It can't be. All they're trying to do is fill seats. These guys, someone joked with me the other day, they write me this is a long-time listener and supporter of the ministry. Pastor Ed, you're going to have to get a band. A rock band. Because that's what they're all doing. And I'm thinking, glory be to our little half circle over here with Art and Brian and the rest of us gathered around a piano. Amen? That's awesome. We don't need a rock band to try to bring people in to fill seats. That's disgusting. Anyways. Anybody else get a little ticked off like that? I'm sick and tired of it. James 1, 2 to 3. They don't understand this. I don't know what Bible they're reading. They must not be reading their Bible. Consider it nothing but joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you fall into various trials. Be assured that the testing of your faith through experience, that's right, you're going to go through it. Stop talking about it. Oh, I'm going to suffer for Jesus. They didn't have my macchiato light. That's real suffering. I had to spend $4.50 on a latte with an extra shot. Yeah, you're just suffering for Jesus. (laughs) Uh, I'll get off it. Be assured that the testing of your faith through experience, through experience 
produces endurance, leading to spiritual maturity and inner peace. Everybody wants the inner peace, but they don't want to go through the training. Verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result and do a thorough work, so that you may be perfect and completely developed in your faith, lacking nothing. That perspective right there is not available to the unregenerate person, for they do not live by faith. James gives us perspective then up here on the board. Deliverance means being saved daily. This is the theme we started with. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. You want deliverance now? Gather a little perspective from the Word of God, like we just saw in James 1. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. The Word gives us perspective, and the Spirit ensures us it is truth. We also noted Peter's discourse on the coexistence of joy and suffering for the man who lives by faith. 1 Peter 4.12 in the Amplified up here in the board. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is taking place to test you, that is, to test the quality of your faith as though something strange or unusual happening to you. That's not, I mean, a Christian should never be surprised that they're going to be tested. But it isn't fair. I could get my mother up here right now. One of her mantras growing up was, Eddie, life isn't fair. Right, Mom? She used to say that all the time. Dude, so don't be surprised. Life's, look, life's not meant to be quote-unquote fair to you. Satan's going to assure that. It's very fair when you have God's perspective, but it's very unfair if you have the world's perspective. Follow God, you're going to lose out. You're going to be persecuted. You are going to suffer. So from the world's perspective, it's like, wow, wow, this is, what the heck? Follow God's perspective? Whatever. Bring it on. You learn to laugh at it, like I was this morning. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I have a couple of choice words, of course, with any present demons. Yeah. Anyways. I'm not going to say that it involved flanges. Everybody's like, what's a flange? It's a finger. I'm not going to say it didn't involve flanges, because it, it may have. It may, involve, it may have involved me spinning around in my chair even. Just to keep warm. Verse 13. But insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, keep on rejoicing. So that when His glory, filled with His radiance and splendor, is revealed, you may rejoice with great joy. So you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. What do you expect? The world hates you. That's very strong language. It's not like, hey, the world, you and the world might not get along. It's not like when you have a sibling, you know, like, hey, you two might not get along. No. This is when your sibling is the devil. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. Right? That, they hate you. The world hates you. They may never say it. They may smile at you. <laughs> oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. You like Jesus? Isn't that nice? Verse 14, if you are insulted and reviled,
people bearing the name of Christ. You are blessed, happy, with life joy and comfort in God's salvation, regardless of your circumstances, because the Spirit of glory and of God is resting on you and indwelling you. He whom they curse, you glorify. Isn't that beautiful? That's perspective. That's the perspective the Spirit's trying to impart to you. And then finally, Peter makes this wonderfully powerful closing statement in this same chapter, verse 19. Therefore, those who are ill-treated and suffer in accordance with the will of God must continue to do right and commit their souls for safekeeping to the faithful Creator. Remember, Satan's strategy is, while persecuting you, to knock you off balance. I always think of the running analogy. If you've ever run and someone hits your elbow on the way back, it completely blows your stride. That's all Satan's trying to do. He's right behind you. And every time your arm comes back, he pops your elbow. And you're like... And it's really hard to keep a efficient, fluid pace if every so often, and you know when it's coming, someone pops your elbow and throws you off. Nonetheless, we shall entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And just so you know, that's the New American, just so you know, paratithemy is where we get the word translated in trust. It's a banking term. We shall entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Think of a banking term that means to deposit for safekeeping. In other words, God, take me, all of me. Think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Take all of me for safekeeping. You guard my soul. So it's a banking term, and trust, that means deposit for safekeeping, refers to a complete surrender of one's soul to God who is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9. That's why it even you could look at that right there and say, never even put your or deposit your soul for safekeeping in another human being, even if you're married to them. It's not their position. It's not their authority. It's not their sovereignty. It's not even in their ability to guarantee the safekeeping of your soul. And a lot of people make that mistake. I think about these two getting married soon, right? They shouldn't do that to each other. It's a burden you shouldn't put on one another. That's God's job. So we shall entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Trust, I was thinking about that. Trust is arguably the hardest thing to gain, but the easiest to lose in this world. You know what I'm saying? Trust is arguably the hardest thing to gain, but the easiest thing to lose in this world. As such, having been burned so many times by others, we struggle with trust issues. We say we trust God, but our actions speak much louder than our proclamations, don't they? We say, oh, I totally trust the Lord. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, what are you doing self-sanctifying then? So we say we trust God, but our actions... See, it's good that the people with that disease didn't show up. 
They'd be melting. <laughs> People online is raining really hard. Okay. We say we trust God, but our actions speak much louder than our proclamations. As a congregant shared recently with me up here on the board, they shared this, if a person truly desires to do something, they will. And, uh, I had asked this person the question, you know, why does it seem like everybody, no matter what the heck comes from the pulpit, no matter how hard I spit and yell and do my best to, you know, through the Lord, through the Spirit, to express the will of God, people just do what they want. Honestly. They just do what they want. They don't care about what's actually being stated from the pulpit. They only care to the degree that it suits them, that it aligns with their own personal priorities. You know what I'm saying? And that was sort of the discussion. So this person responded, if a person truly desires to do something, they will. It doesn't matter what time it is, how cold it is, how tired they are, etc. If they want to do it more than they want to execute any of their other options, then they'll do it. Priorities. I'm not judging anyone, including myself. It is just fact. If you want to do it, you will. And the when you do it is all a function of your priorities. It's true. People are funny. They hear the word of God. They might even be convicted by it while they're sitting here. But as soon as they step off the walkway out there, it's back to the old life. It's back to their own self-will. It's back to their own self-justification, their own self-righteousness, their own self-sanctification. I'll add to that priorities, this point on the board. Priorities are a function of trust. In other words, up here on the board, I'll add this way. We give priority to those things we trust will bear fruit in our lives. Is that fair? Yeah. We give priority to those things we trust will bear fruit in our lives. Okay, so here I am at the fork in the road. This way is God's way. This way is my way. This way is sanctification by God. This is self-sanctification. Which one do I trust more? This is God's happiness. This is my own version of happiness. Which one do I trust more? Do I trust God more to bear happiness as a fruit in my life? Or do I trust this pathway of self-sanctification to generate, to bear a counterfeit happiness, even though you don't think of it that way because you play games? Which one do I trust more? So we give priority to those things we trust will bear fruit in our lives because Look, there's only so much time in a day, right? And this little pathway and this pathway, well, they come together at the same point. I only have enough time and energy and whatever to do one. Which one do I choose? God says, like the blog, choose life that you may what? Live. The righteous man shall what? Live by faith. That's why you have to ask yourself, you know, the practical thing is, what are you celebrating? Up here on the board, Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, what is it that you treasure? Do you treasure Jesus Christ or do you treasure yourself? you treasure God's will or your will? 
Do you treasure God's opinion of you or the world's opinion of you? Which one do you treasure more? Which one do you care about more? Because that's where your heart will be. And as the congregant said, that's where your priorities will be as well. And it's funny because once your priorities are set, that's sort of like your system of values, the decisions you make always go in that direction. And that's why the Spirit's been trying to reset your perspective, reset your priorities. Take it to new places where there is a joy set before you. Again, the point being amplified up here on the board. Deliverance means being saved daily. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. The Word gives us perspective and the Spirit ensures us it is truth. The issue, as we've been discussing as of late, is that sin has a tendency to ruin perfectly good perspective. You want to get, you want to, you want to jerk yourself off the righteous path. Start making decisions for sin. Start ignoring the commands of God. Stop, or start ignoring the convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. You want to get off the beaten path, off the narrow way, if you would? Do that. Sin has a tendency to ruin a perfectly good perspective. And when we lose perspective, the door is opened to the influences of spiritual death. So perspective is key. Especially when we talk about trust issues. Sowing doubt and mistrust, Satan knows this. Satan repeats lies over and over again until we subtly begin accepting the lies as truth. We start listening to our neighbors who are complete morons. We start listening to the to the mega church, you know, prosperity guy that's, you know, got the pearly whites and the, the bands and the, you know, hundred foot stage with the, you know, crazy gold crosses and multi-million dollar whatevers. We start listening to these morons who, by the way, those are the same people who have more and more become advocates for the ecumenical church. For the, you know, it's all one God movement. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So beware what you accept as normal. Because it, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's righteous. Satan's very good at establishing normal. Some like to say that religion is Satan's ace trump card, that he encapsulates his overall strategy under the umbrella of doing good. But I'll say this, counterfeit salvation. All religions come back to one basic satanic strategy, that is that the creature saves himself, sanctifies himself for himself and by himself. That's what counterfeit salvation looks like. That's what Satan wants everyone to think, that it's about a self-righteousness. If not at salvation then at experiential phase of sanctification, after you're saved even, that it's always about self-righteousness. That was Satan's problem of pride. He was self-righteous and he merchandised, you remember? 
He traded that with those around him. Do a little this for me, and I'll do a little that for you. Take one step in the direction, in this direction, away from God, and I will reward you. That's always my favorite. Really hard to discern, but I had a nice conversation with Michael about that before class. It's really hard to discern when something is from God and when it's from Satan. In other words, you know, I got this promotion at work, or I got this new thing, or I got this, you know, this new girlfriend or boyfriend. I got this new something in my life. And because it's making me happy, it's got to be from God. No, it doesn't. See, Satan's very smart. He says, keep on making decisions for yourself. Keep walking away from what you know is true, what you know is righteous, what you know is the will of God, and I will reward you for it. And then I'll send the little fiery dots in the good kind that says, you're on the path of righteousness. This is God who's blessing you out. Only it's the God of this world, not the God that's in heaven. A lot of people make that mistake, folks. And this is what those perverse pulpits capitalize on. They say, see, you're getting blessed out. See, you're getting blessed out. God's blessing you out. And all the whole time, they're going in the wrong direction. And Satan's right there going, all I have to do is just keep, what, reaffirming this person's being blessed? And they'll just keep walking away from God? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the God of this world does. So we all have to, in prayer, in the deepest recess of our soul, take a look, good long look at our lives. What's going on? What are real blessings and what are not? But religion will tell you, do good, you'll get good. And it's a one-to-one correspondence. We learned to dispel all of that when we studied the 63 parts of Job back in the day. Bless you. Right? We dispelled all of that. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. You may do good and be persecuted. You may do more good and be persecuted again. And then do more good and be persecuted even worse. And in the book, of the, the, the Bible says, don't grow weary for doing good. For that brings glory to God. So don't make that mistake of thinking that God just blesses you out because somehow you're doing good, or because you're, you're, being, you're quote-unquote being blessed, that somehow that's God rewarding you. It could be the God of this world. That's the compass you need, because the compass will throw up red flags and say, I think I might be going in the wrong direction here. If you start walking away from a relationship with Christ, then you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're going in the wrong direction. In other words, if you have less and less and less time to learn the Word, to fellowship with Him, to pray to Him. You're too exhausted, you're too tired, you're too dragged away. You might have something to think about, my friends. Seriously. Because there's only one thing that matters, and that's a relationship with Christ. And if anything gets in the way of that, you have to take a good long look in the mirror and say, is this from God or is this from the God of this world? But, you know, if you're a man, I don't know how, it's more so for women now, but I grew up, you know, as a man, so it's like everything. I mean, the world rewards you for being successful in a certain way. The problem is a big old trap. Not that you can't be successful and godly. 
But there's this, there's this pathway of worldly rewards and accolades and pats on the back. a boy, you're the man, you're the man. You know, and you're like, yeah. And you go home and you're like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And you open up your Bible and you go, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Yeah. Beware. Go to John 17-15. All religions come back to one basic satanic strategy. That is that creature saves himself, sanctifies himself, for himself, by himself. So you get to celebrate yourself, you see? You get to celebrate yourself. Then if you do really good in the world, the world rewards you even more. And then maybe you have little bambinos running around, little kids or something like that, and you shower them with whatever is big on the world nowadays, and you live vicariously through them. And they go, oh, man, you're the best parent. That kid, look at them kid with the little bow in their hair. From, what's that place in New York City? That really expensive shop. Nobody wants to admit it. Yeah, they're all like, I know what it is, but if I say it, it means I meant there. You know what I'm talking about? Probably the same place that sold that $450,000 purse. Anyways. What are you celebrating? Seriously, what are we celebrating, people? If it's not Jesus Christ, if, if glory doesn't somehow make it back to Jesus Christ for that thing you're celebrating, you might want to look in the mirror and say, what the heck am I celebrating? John 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. That means set them apart. It's not just a positional issue. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Who's he praying to? God our Father. Only God can sanctify man up here on the board. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Okay, let's go back. Romans 1.16. I've got to close here in a few minutes. Romans 1.16. And when I say a few, not two or three, so just saying. You'll get time to go back to celebrate your little... Whatever. Oh, that's not funny? <laughs> no, nobody thinks that's funny? I think it's hilarious. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. On Thursday, we looked at Romans 4, which spoke to Abraham's faith and how Paul used pure logic to refute those Judaizers, the religious folks of the day, who were agents of Satan peddling religion. They wanted to ensnare individuals into believing it was salvation by works, whether positionally or experientially. Always some works program. And Paul destroys that with his epistle. We were given this principle up here on the board. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Hold your thumb there. Go quickly. Romans 4.3. Romans 4.3. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. 
In other words, there's nothing you can work for to obtain righteousness or the faith that can impart it to you. Romans 4.3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How about verse 9? Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then verse 22. Therefore it, his faith, was also credited to him as righteousness. And that was just to amplify the point on the board. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Okay, go back to Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith up here on the board. Faith and righteousness as a principle. What Paul is getting at in Romans 1.17 when he says this righteousness that we've received from God is revealed is that it is revealed in such a way that faith is the channel for grace that sanctifies at salvation and beyond. From faith to faith. Therefore, when true faith exists in a believer, the grace of God is revealed. Even what it gives, which is righteousness. Stated more practically, God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which His grace is poured out. A believer lives by faith. Of course, the baseline pattern for any phase of salvation or sanctification is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You will never self-sanctify yourself. You will never be self-righteous. Any righteousness you have, as Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, any righteousness you have, is from God. And it was given through faith, by grace, because He loves you. And He solved all the problems. But you know how we are. Let me close with one last thing from J. Vernon McGee on from faith to faith. Up here on the board. From faith to faith simply means out of faith into faith. God saves you by faith. You live by faith, you die by faith, and you'll be in heaven by faith. When I was born, this is him speaking, when I was born, my mother said, the doctor lifted me up by my heels, gave me a whack, and I let out a cry that could be heard on all four borders of that great state. He lived in Texas, I believe, at the time. I was born into a world of atmosphere, and that whack started me breathing. From that to do this, I have been breathing atmosphere from air to air, from oxygen to oxygen. Much later in the state of Oklahoma, I was born again. I was saved by faith, and from that time on, it has been by faith, from faith to faith. From air to air, from oxygen to oxygen from faith to faith. One last read, Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Up here on the board, last principle. To live by faith is to be righteous. The righteousness that we receive from God is revealed as He sanctifies us from faith to faith. God is righteous. He was righteous in saving you. You are righteous in Christ. Get the lights, guys.
Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for a time to do this thing that truly matters most. Dining on the very bread of life, the Word of God, the Logos, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the Word is our sustenance, and without it, we are spiritually malnourished. Minus the nutrition, we need daily to press on and fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for your faithfulness to this ministry and to those willing to stick it out in truth while the world persecutes them. Thank you for encouraging each of us with simple reminders of your grace and your love. And we do pray for all those ill, Father, that they might find a special bit of encouragement in knowing these things. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.